Okay, so following up from the last class, we talked about carbohydrates, and now we're going to get into a sugar-containing compound. We're gonna, this section of the course deals mostly with uh, central dogma, DNA, RNA, and gene expression. And again, some, certain elements of it, similar to the last section, I, knew, I know you guys did already things like pH and probably Henderson-Hesselbach, but we got it more complicated. And so I think there's probably also elements of this section that are going to be familiar to you, probably mostly in this lecture, but we're going to expand on it. And that's a theme that's going to continue until you finish. We, we try to always scaffold on things, new things on things you already know, or at least are, are familiar. So uh, the two flavors of nucleic acids you see in cells are uh, deoxyribonucleic acid and ribonucleic acid, abbreviated DNA and RNA. And we'll talk about the distinguishing features between them. They form up the base of the genetic material in all known life forms. Uh, you can think of DNA as your storage form of genetic material. I often think of this as the hard drive of your cell. Uh, you can think of RNA as your, uh, that which you're actively working with at, the, at a given time form. Not the storage form, but the active sort of form of the genetic information. You could think of that as the, the RAM uh, memory of your computer, something like that. It's only what you're actively running. Uh, so these are polymers, okay? They're made up of monomers that are called nucleotides, okay? And the nucleotide has three pieces to it. The nitrogenous base, okay? That varies across the different monomer nucleotides. That's what gives its identity. A five-carbon carbohydrate, the sugar, it's an aldopentose. Specifically, it's ribose. So that's why I have the five-carbon sugars. We talk a lot about ribose. And you guys know what ribose generally is from last class. And that does not vary within DNA uh, nucleotides or within RNA nucleotides, but it does vary across DNA and RNA. And then one, two, or three phosphate groups. So here are the bases. Okay. The bases come in kind of two architectures. Okay. There's this six-carbon ring. That's called a primidine. And then there's this six-carbon ring with this five-carbon ring kind of appended to the side, and that's a purine. Okay. And as we're going to talk about when we get into kind of higher-order nucleic acid structure, at least in a canonical, what we call a canonical Watson-Crick helix, or a double helix like you see in DNA, you always have a purine pairing with the primidine. So the two purines that you commonly see, there are others, and we may cover some of them, but the common purines you see are adenine and guanine. Often you, the other uh, purines or primidines you see in the case of primidines are intermediates in the synthesis of purines and primidines. So you don't really see them very much and, and they're not very common. We don't talk about them very much. But the common ones you see in DNA and RNA, there's adenine and, and guanine. Okay. And then in the primidines you have cytosine. Uh, and then whether you're in DNA or RNA, you're going to have, in DNA, thymine, or in RNA, uracil. Okay. Thymine and uracil vary in the, by the presence of this um, methyl group, which is attached to carbon-5 
of the pyrimidine. So we have this nomenclature system to keep track of what group we're talking about in the bases and the sugars. And you should have some idea as to how to kind of, how that, some of the general rules as to how that works. Okay? So when I talk about, in a few slides, I'm going to be talking about N1 of pyrimidines and N9 of purines. Certainly, at least at the level of which I talk about it, you should understand what, that, what I'm referring to. So, for example, the difference between thymine and uracil is this, the presence of this methyl group at carbon 5 of the pyrimidine ring. Okay. But beyond that, thymine and uracil, what you're going to see is this side of, of the base, okay, this C double bondo, this carbonyl, this NH group here, and this C double bondo here. These are identical between thymine and uracil, and that's important because it's that side of the base that's going to be doing the Watson-Crick interaction with uh, the complementary base in uh, a double-stranded structure. So we'll talk a little bit about the uh, phosphate and the sugar. So the pentose in uh, DNA and RNA is ribose. Okay, we talked about ribose. Part of what gives it the name, deoxyribonucleic acid or ribonucleic acid. And this is the other distinguishing feature between DNA and RNA. It's the presence of a hydroxyl group at the two prime position. If there is a hydroxyl here, well, that's RNA. If you've deoxyed the ribose, as in deoxyribose, meaning this hydroxyl group is missing, and you just have an H here, well, that's from DNA. Now, there's a numbering convention also for the sugar, okay, to identify which carbons or nitrogens in the rings that you're referring to, all right? So when we were talking about the bases, we were talking about N1, C2, N3, C4, C5, C6, so the pyrimidine ring, and, and similarly for the purine ring, we just give it the number. But for the sugar, we add this term prime. You've got the one prime. This is the uh, anomeric carbon, okay, the one, the C1 prime, the carbon one prime of the sugar for pentose. Two prime, three prime, four prime, and five prime. Those are the five sugars of the, of the ring, the sugar ring, okay? So whenever you see here word, the word prime, we're talking about the numbering that relates to the sugar. And if I don't say prime, if I'm saying uh, the N1, without that prime designation, well, then I'm talking about something on the base. Okay, so we use that prime or, uh, that's what I'm talking about, to avoid confusion with the nitrogen's carbons on the bases, the ribose carbon, carbons are designated with this prime designation, okay? And that's important. I think you guys have already covered. When we're talking about which direction a nucleic acid strand goes, this idea of the five prime carbon and the three prime carbon becomes very important. So we're going to be, when we're talking about five prime and three prime, you guys understand now what I'm talking about. Right? The glycosidic bond, so, so the, the bond between the sugar and the base is a glycosidic bond. Glycosidic bonds, as we covered last class, are the ones that are made between the anomeric carbon, okay, of the sugar. Well, this is the anomeric carbon. Yeah, this is the anomeric carbon here. One prime. So for DNA and RNA, it's this, 
carbon of the sugar that's reaching up to make a covalent bond into the nitrogenous base. That will be the N1. Now, on the base, it's not an oxygen. When we covered um, glycosidic bonds last class, that was when we were making disaccharides. And the group on the adjacent sugar that we were making that covalent bond to was an alcohol group. Up on the base, it's not an alcohol. It's a nitrogen that's being bound, but it's still a glycosidic bond because it's coming from this anomeric carbon. Right? We still call it this glycosidic bond. And going back here, the glycosidic bond goes to the N1 of a pyrimidine here and to the N9 of a purine. Okay. So this is the nitrogen here or this nitrogen here that are covalently linked to the sugar in the context of a nucleotide. So we talk about the conformations of the sugars in DNA and RNA. Okay. We talked about this idea of cyclization of sugars last class. So ribose is an aldose, so it's got an aldehyde group. It cyclizes into a furan ring. It's only, it's a five carbon sugar. So the um, purine ring is not really available to it. Okay. So this five carbon sugar cyclizes into a furanose. It's a beta furanose that is uh, with the hydroxyl pointing up. Right. So the sugar ribose and aldose cyclizes into beta D furanose. Okay. Or beta two prime deoxy D furanose in DNA. Okay. So here's beta furanose. This is what you'd have in RNA. There's this chemical modification or designation change that happens for DNA, this hydroxyl is missing in DNA at the two prime position. So we've got beta two prime deoxy D furanose okay, in DNA. Right? And the formation of the glycosidic bond right, between this, ox this hydroxyl group, we talked about glycosidic bonds becoming locked in place. Right? When this anomeric carbon makes a glycosidic bond up to the base, well then this is going to be locked in that conformation. And it turns out that, so we talked about the different shapes that you can have in, at least for glucose, we talked about chair and boat, right? Well, for uh, this furanose ring that you find in ribose, uh, when it's attached to the base, there's basically two conformations that you can get that are stable, okay? There's C2, what we call C2 prime endo, okay? And another way of calling C, this is C2 prime, ex, uh, sorry, C2 prime endo. Uh, you can also differentiate these as in the exo conformation, but we always refer to the endo. Okay, so don't worry so much about exo. You can, you can this is the way it would look in, in C3 prime exo. Um, and when you have C2 prime endo, you actually also have C, so C2 prime endo, the three prime carbon will be in the exo conformation. And for C3 prime endo, the C2 prime carbon will be in the exo conformation. So that's kind of what this is referring to. For simplicity, we only refer to the endo, okay, just to keep it straight. So the point is that for C2 prime endo, it's the C2 carbon that's projecting up above the plane of the ring. And for C3 prime endo, it's the three prime it's the, C, it's the three prime carbon that's projecting above the plane of the ring. 
these are chemically the same ribose, right? It's just different conformations around the ring. With respect to the ribose in DNA and RNA, we refer to these as puckers. Okay, so there's the C2 prime endo pucker and the C3 prime endo pucker. And you find the two different conformations in the two different types of nucleic acid. So C2 prime endo predominates in DNA and C3 prime endo predominates in RNA. And the reason for that has to do with this hydroxyl group here. So the presence of the hydroxyl group makes the C3 prime endo conformation more stable in RNA. And the absence of the hydroxyl group in DNA makes the C2 prime endo conformation more stable. So that hydroxyl group has some very important it does some very important things that we're going to talk about, and I'm going to allude to this in a few other slides, but you want to bear this in mind, and I'm going to probably mention it more than once. In RNA, the presence of that hydroxyl group on the, C, on the two prime position, well, number one, it influences the pucker, as I just talked about, right? As a result of it influencing the shape of the, of the sugar, it makes the RNA much more conformationally flexible than DNA. So DNA is much is more rigid than RNA. You, you, DNA really likes to form that kind of classic helical structure that you're used to seeing. Whereas RNA can, is much happier to bend around and do all sorts of interesting, crazy things. And the other interesting thing about that hydroxyl is that, and we may or may not cover this, but um, on the order of 20 years ago, two people named Tom Check and Sid Altman, Sid Altman's Canadian, discovered that it's not only proteins that can do chemical reactions. They actually discovered that RNA can do chemical reactions. RNA can act as an enzyme, which started the term ribozyme, right? A ribose or RNA enzyme. And that hydroxyl matters for its ability to do that. So this hydroxyl group that you have in RNA is often very important for the ability of RNA to catalyze chemical reactions. And that was good enough to win those two. That was good enough to win those two guys a Nobel Prize. So that was interesting. So you want to have some idea about the, the nomenclature. And this type of a table lends itself really well to exam questions. So you want to understand the difference between a base, a nucleoside, and a nucleotide. Okay? The base refers to just these. That is the nitrogenous base with no sugar on them. Okay? And here are the bases adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine, and uracil. Okay? Once you add a sugar on it, it changes from a base into a nucleoside. And your nucleoside, the, the name of the nucleoside will depend on whether you're making an RNA base or a DNA base, right? If you're putting a deoxyribose on it, the sugar is a deoxyribose, it's going to be a DNA base, sorry, DNA nucleoside. And if you put a ribose sugar on it, then it, with it that has the hydroxyl group on it, then it's going to be a RNA nucleoside. And the names of the nucleosides, so you basically... You change adenine into adenosine, 
guanine into guanosine. In general, you get this kind of S's on the purines and, and D's on the, on the pyrimidines. Cytosine becomes cytidine. And if it's RNA, you would call it adenosine, but if it's DNA, you'd call it deoxyadenosine. So it all kind of makes sense as long as you keep track. Guanosine, deoxyguanosine, cytidine, deoxycytidine, thymidine, uh, or deoxythymidine. Okay? So thymidine would be a sugar, an RNA sugar on a thymine base. So that's something that doesn't really happen very much in, in DNA, right? Because DNA doesn't have RNA in it, right? More commonly, they have deoxythymidine. Uracil, you've got uridine. You don't really have, likewise, you don't really have deoxythymidine, deoxyuridine, because uridine doesn't really happen in RNA. So this is the rules for once you add a sugar onto a base, and then once you put a phosphate on it, that's the third part, okay, it becomes a nucleotide. And now you're changing adenosine into adenylate, deoxyadenosine into a deoxyadenylate. More specifically, we usually, I mean, this is the general term for a sugar that has had a, pho a phosphate put on it. But more commonly, we will specify what nucleotide it is by specifying the nature of the phosphate. So instead of uh, adenosine that has three phosphates added on it, it will be called uh, ATP, right? Adenosine triphosphate. So that's another way of saying this, but now you're specifying the number of phosphates on it, or AMP, or DATP, deoxyadenosine triphosphate. Okay. So that's kind of the other way we refer to nucleotides. We specify the actual, instead of just saying this adenylate, which is kind of generic and not very informative, we actually append the phosphate nomenclature onto the adenosine with the sp and, and specify what number of phosphates gets put on adenosine monophosphate, adenosine diphosphate, adenosine triphosphate. And I think you guys already know that ATP is going to be very different and it's going to have very different abilities and consequences in the cell than, say, AMP. And so that gets a little bit to what I'm talking about here. Uh, so nucleotides contain one two or three phosphate groups. So this is nucleotides now. We're out of nucleosides. Nucleosides is just the sugar. Nucleotides contain one, two, or three phosphate groups attached to the five prime carbon, classically the five prime carbon, but I don't think we're going to cover the other ones. All right. And we, we give them a name. We name those phosphates, the alpha, the beta, and the gamma phosphate. Okay. So the one that's closest to the sugar is the alpha phosphate. The middle one is the beta phosphate, and the last phosphate is the gamma phosphate. Okay? And this matters when you're doing experiments in the lab, right? When you convert, say, so if this base was A, this would be ATP, right? So they've not specified which base is here. So N refers to 
any base. It can be A, C, G, U, or T. All right? Well, in this case, it's RNA, so not, you see this hydroxyl here? That means that this is RNA, so there wouldn't be T in this case. But N means a base, a base monophosphate, a base diphosphate, yikes, a base triphosphate. And this is basically the abbreviations for the RNA ones, AMP, ADP, ATP. And this is the one for the deoxy ones, the DNA ones, right? And so we've swapped out uracil with thymine, and we've put this lowercase d in front of all, all of them. So when you're going onto the Sigma website and you want to order RNA GDP, and you forget to put the little d there, they're going to ship you the wrong thing. And then that's a problem when you do your experiment and nothing works. Is it too unstable to add additional phosphate groups? Not that I'm aware of, but in biological systems, I think that just doesn't happen very much. There are some intermediates that, we're gonna, that we may cover where there are variations on this, but I've never found a delta phosphate. So we got alpha and beta and gamma. I, and, and which one is which matters, okay? So for example, when this is ATP, when you, when a kinase or uh, hydrolyzes a phosphate on ATP to make ADP, it's taking off one phosphate to do that, well, it never takes off the beta or the alpha. It always takes off the gamma, right? Kinases will take off this phosphate to make ADP, right? And so which phosphate's which kind of has some importance. So we, give, we, we name them alpha, beta, and gamma. And then there's this kind of no nomenclature here to kind of keep track of the abbreviations. Again, you don't really have D-U-M-P or D-U-D-P or D-U-T-P. That's kind of the point I was making on the last slide because deoxyuracil doesn't really happen. Likewise, you don't have T-M-P, T-D-P, or T-T-P-P, T-T-P, without the lowercase d because thymine doesn't happen in RNA. So it's a good thing to kind of get, your handle, get a handle on those rules and, and try to keep track of them. So now we're going to take those mononucleotides and polymerize them into polynucleotides. Okay. The first thing to bear in mind is, is, is this idea of, of nucleic acids having direction. And this gets to what I was talking about with respect to um, that 5 prime end and that 3 prime end. And it's confusing, but once you become a person that does this as their job, it becomes really second nature. So it's helpful to be handy with it. So, so DNA and RNA polynucleotides will have a, what we call a 5 prime end and a 3 prime end. All right? When you one way of thinking about that is when you synthesize a poly DNA or a poly RNA, there's typically going to be an N with a 5 prime phosphate and an N with a 3 prime hydroxyl group, and you're always going to put new nucleotides on this end, a five, the 3 prime hydroxyl group. That's shown here in a different way. Okay, so here's 
uh, AMP. Okay, there's an A and a monophosphate on it. Okay. This T here used to be uh, DTTP, deoxy uh, thymidine triphosphate. And what happened was an enzyme came along and removed the beta and the gamma phosphates. That, that generated a lot of energy when it did that. That's a hydrolysis reaction of uh, triphosphate. And the remaining alpha phosphate was linked to the 3' hydroxyl of the preceding A. So now you've got this, what we call this phosphodiester linkage. You've got the 3' carbon of the A, an O, a phosphate, another O. These are esters, right? These O-linked covalent bonds. O, phosphate, O, and then into the 5' carbon of the next nucleotide. So we call this a phosphodiester linkage. And then once that T is put on, then the new, quote unquote, three prime end, this T will have a three prime hydroxyl. And then what happened was this G, which used to be D, deoxy, because there's no hydroxyl here, deoxy GTP, that G lost its beta and gamma phosphates and its remaining alpha phosphate was linked to this three prime carbon. And now we've got a three prime end, okay? So when we're looking at the chain, there's a five prime phosphate at the five prime end. And there's a three prime hydroxyl at what we call the three prime end. One way that people think about this in terms of, like may be useful to you, but you should do what, you, what, what makes it clearest for you. I always think this looks a little bit like the subway, right? It's like this is Kipling and this is Kennedy, right? There's an end. There's an, and, and, and knowing which way you're going, it's helpful to know whether you're going towards the Kipling end or the Kennedy end. You've got a long chain of subway stops, kind of similar to a long chain of nucleotides, right? And knowing which end you're at, it's sometimes useful to look at the very ends of the chain. You've got the five prime end here. It's got a phosphate typically linked to a free five prime carbon. And then you've got a three prime end. There's a free three prime hydroxyl here. You follow? And that analogy also helps you when you're thinking about which ways the chains are extended. Polynucleotides are always synthesized by adding NTPs or DNTPs to the three prime end. Never to the five prime end. You start at the five prime end. So it's like you're always, when you're extending a polypeptide cha polynucleotide chain, you're always going to Kennedy. You're never going to Kipling. You know, it's always, you start at one end and you always go, you're always adding on new nucleotides onto the three prime end. And that's one of the few rules I think that doesn't get broken. I mean, we talk about rules in molecular biology. Polymerases always add to the three prime end. And I've not come across a, well, <laughs> I guess there are kind of some exceptions, but they're, they're not really exceptions because they're kind of different things. Okay. 
So the 5 prime N will typically have phosphates or modified phosphates. The 3 prime N has their, the hydroxyl, and we're adding on to the 3 prime N. And this is what DNA looks like. RNA has the same concept. It's just that these are all, these are not deoxynucleotides with the hydroxyl missing. They all have their hydroxyls at the 2 prime. Same principle for RNA. Is that relatively clear? And then we've got this shorthand up here. People typically, they don't want to draw all this out. So we'll typically draw a 5 prime end. It's implied that you've got this phosphodiester backbone and then there are sugars in here. What's more important is the identity of the nucleotide. So they just write that in. So this is kind of a shorthand version of this. So this is kind of what I uh, was talking about a little bit. These chains are made by the removal of the beta and the gamma phosphates on your triphosphate and a new linkage being formed via the remaining alpha phosphate. So these phosphates in the backbone here are all, they were all alpha phosphates on the previous triphosphate. And that's why DNA and RNA, you guys understand that hydrolysis of ATP is a very exergonic reaction. It's very energetically favored. You get a lot of energy by hydrolyzing ATP. Well, you also get a lot of energy by hydrolyzing the bond between the alpha phosphate and the beta phosphate when you're making polypeptide chains. And so synthesis of DNA and RNA is a very exergonic reaction. It's very favored. The enzyme, the energy you need to make the DNA and the RNA, it comes from the substrates. It's that hydrolysis of the triphosphate into the monophosphate that really drives that process. So you don't need... You don't need to hydrolyze extra ATP to make DNA or RNA. Just the, the substrates that you're using come with their own high energy bonds that you're breaking and, and getting energy out of to drive the reaction. <clears throat> now, this is kind of the chain that we were drawing before. Okay, on one side. The other thing that DNA and RNA love to do, which I think you're already aware of, DNA and RNA strands will form anti-parallel double helices. Okay, that is, this one strand, through hydrogen bonding, will pair with another strand. Okay? In such a way that, well, we first thing, we call it anti-parallel. Why is it anti-parallel? Well, we talked about this direction, right? The 5 prime end to the 3 prime end, right? You got this 5 prime end and the 3 prime end of this chain. The direction of the complementary strand, the other strand, will be running the other way when you make a normal double helix, okay? So this one goes 5 prime to 3 prime top to bottom, and this one goes 5 prime to 3 prime bottom to top, okay? So it's anti-parallel. And what you get is these hydrogen bonds between the bases, right? Cs always pair with Gs. There was this really neat experiment that was done before we knew what DNA and RNA looked like by this guy named Shargaff. He found that for DNA, the amount of C in the cell was always the amount, between organisms, the amount of C and G and A and T would vary. But within that organism, the amount of C was always the same as the amount of G, and the amount of A was always the same as the amount of T. 
And the reason for that is, and that helped Watson and Crick a lot when they were trying to figure out what a DNA, that kind of idea, the remem remembering that rule helped them a lot when they were trying to figure out what the structure was. The reason that the amount of C always the same amount of, is always the same as the amount of G is because C pairs with G. So for every C in one DNA strand, you have to have a G on the other one. And they interact with one another. And we're blowing that up down here. This is a G, and this is a C. The interesting thing to bear in mind is that when a C pairs with a G, you've got three hydrogen bonds that hold them together. And this gets back to what I was talking about before, remember? Um, so in thymine, this methyl group, this is the methyl group that makes thymine thymine. If that methyl group is missing, then it's uracil, right? So the presence of that methyl group does not interfere with the ability of thymine or uracil to pair with A, right? Because it's off to the side here. Okay. So thymine and uracil pair with A the exact same way. And when you're talking about an AT base pair or an AU base pair, well, in that case, we're talking about two hydrogen bonds, right? So CG, three hydrogen bonds. AT or AU, two hydrogen bonds. That makes the GC pair more stable. Okay? It's harder to melt, it's harder to separate DNA that's very GC rich compared to DNA that's very AT rich. Because it's being held together by an extra hydrogen. Every base pair has an extra hydrogen bond in it for a GC pair versus an AT pair. And one of the neat things you see out of that is when you look at the DNA of organisms that grow at very high temperature. So some famous ones are Thermus thermophilus. This was discovered in these hot springs in Yellowstone. They grow at 70, 80, 90 degrees Celsius, nearly boiling water. And somehow these organisms are capable of living happily at that. They only live at that temperature. Well, you look at their DNA, their DNA is much more GC rich. And that makes sense because their DNA needs to be more stable. It needs to stay together at high temperature. And then you look at cryophiles, organisms that grow at, they don't grow at 37, they grow at 10, 10 degrees or 16 degrees Celsius. Their DNA is going to be more AT rich. Their DNA has to be able to come apart at low temperature, right? So you understand that concept that the GC base pair is more stable than the AT one, and that's because of those differences in hydrogen bonds. And we're noting that for a DNA or an RNA strand, it's only the bases that change, right? The sugars and the phosphates in the back, what we call the backbone, we just draw this in kind of as filler, right? It's not very interesting or exciting. And that's getting back to kind of the shorthand up here. They don't change, right? The sugar in DNA is the same across every nucleotide. Now that sugar is different between DNA and RNA, but in RNA, Again, within RNA, there's no change. It's always the same. So the sugars and the phosphodiester backbone are invariant. Okay, so what causes, we talked about some of the things that cause proteins to want to um, conform to a particular shape. Right? Why do Proteins want to fold a certain way. Well, we talked about hydrophobic amino acids and hydrophilic ones and hydrophobic effect. 
So what are the things that make nucleic acids fold in the shape they fold into? Well, the, pho the phosphate backbone is highly acidic, which means it's got this negative charge on it. And it's a highly acidic negative charge. It's a very acidic group. Okay, its pKa is very low. Right? That means that, you know, if every nucleotide comes along with its own negative charge, that means that a very long chain has a lot of negative charge on it. That's why, and I alluded to this in the last section, when you run nucleic acids out on a gel, you don't need something like SDS to give it a uniform charge. SDS gave the protein a uniform negative charge. For every amino acid in the chain, it bound one SDS molecule, and so basically you had this negative charge dominating the charge of the protein, and, and that would migrate in the gel based exclusively on its mass, since the mass to charge ratio is the same. But DNA and RNA come with their own version of that. You don't have to worry about it, right? Every nucleotide has its own negative charge on it, so uh, we don't need an SDS for for DNA and RNA. Because it's so polar, because it's acidic, it interacts very favorably with water. The bases, though, they don't like to interact with water so much. Right? They're, they've got these ring structures that, in your chemistry, you've come across as understanding, well, these, these ring structures tend to be hydrophobic. Right? They don't like to interact with water. And so what they do is they stack on top of one another. And so you get this stacking of bases on top of one another to minimize their exposure to water. Similar in concept to that kind of hydrophobic effect. And that's one reason why even when the nucleic acid is not double-stranded, it still will be helical. Right? So single-stranded nucleic acids are also helical because you get this very ordered stacking of the bases on top of one another, and that imparts kind of a helical turn to the strand. So that's one thing that really kind of dictates how nucleic acids form in water. It's this idea that you get this stacking of the bases on top of one another. And then you get these hydrogen bonds between the functional groups on the bases. And that is what makes DNA and RNA like to form double helices. Double helices right? Because you get these hydrogen bonds between uh, Gs and Cs, and A's and T's, or A's and U's, that drives nucleic acids to forming a double helix if they can. But to be able to do that, the sequences have to line up, right? And I think you guys understand that, and we'll talk about it a little bit. A C and a G on opposite strands is great, but if the next nucleotide in the sequence on one strand is an A, but on the opposite strand isn't a T or a U, well, that's a problem because they don't want to interact with one another. And so what you get is this idea of this extensive double helix structure being formed if the two sequences, if their order, are what we call complementary. So this idea of complementarity or two strands being complementary refers to one strand lining up with the other in terms of its sequence and this ability to hydrogen bond. So this C and G could form between any two strands of DNA. But that's not going to happen very likely. The likelihood that that's going to happen is going to be low if the next two nucleotides 
in the strands don't match up. If this, instead of being an AT, is an AA, well, they're really not going to want to accommodate one another. And so that CG is going to say, well, I could probably do better. I'm going to find a different CG where my buddy next to me lines up nicely. And so when you have extended sequences or extended regions of the sequences lining up nicely, well, that's where you're going to get double helices forming. Okay. So we talked a little bit about uh, these hydrogen bond interactions, those stacking interactions between the bases. Those are largely moderated by Van der Waals forces. And this is the kind of the three-dimensional structure of what uh, DNA would look like. Um, so we're basically, when those bases stack on top of one another, you know, the bond angles that exist in that nucleotide don't allow them to stack on top of one another perfectly. There's always kind of a twist a little bit to it, and that imparts this helicity, right? So you get this characteristic, which you guys have already seen, I'm sure, um, this kind of helicity to the, to the, to the, interact, to the helix, to the, to the stacking interaction that causes it to turn around like this. And when you do that, you see that there's kind of this big gap that forms naturally and this little gap that forms naturally. Okay? We call this big gap the major groove, okay? and we call this little gap the minor groove. Okay? Going back to or this kind of Watson-Crick base pair, when you're talking about the adenine and the thymine, if this was in a double-stranded helix, it's this side of that base pair that's going to project into the major groove, right? So, whoop. When you're looking down here, you're looking at the tops of all these base pairs, right? And by top, I mean this side. And it's this side that projects into the minor groove. So when you're looking down here, kind of looking at the bottom ends of those, of those faces. So we tend to call, when we refer to these um, sides of these nucleotides, okay, we call this side the side that interacts with the complementary base. So a standard double-stranded helix, we call that a Watson-Crick helix, because Watson and Crick were the ones that figured it out, right? That kind of double-stranded nature of DNA. So we call this face of adenine and this face of thymine the Watson-Crick face of the bases. This side that runs along the top, we call that the major groove face, or the major groove side. And this side down here, we call the minor groove side. Okay. So each, so when we're looking at adenine, just adenine. So if I were to go back to... Adenine, this would be the Watson-Crick face, this would be the major groove face, and this would be the minor groove face. Okay. And that has to do with how they orient themselves in a double-stranded helix. Another thing to bear in mind that's important for this major groove, minor groove thing is that when proteins recognize nucleic acid sequences, right, they 
most commonly, not exclusively, but most commonly access this major groove. They want to read the sequence of that DNA in there to see if their recognition site is there. And so they're actually putting protein side chains into here to see, okay, is that an A or is that a C or a G? So that minor groove face is often accessed by proteins to look for sequences. Now, when we're talking about kind of the topology of the helix, that is kind of the, this kind of shape, right? This kind of big major groove and little minor groove. There's actually different flavors that this can take, okay? And that's kind of shown here. This is B-form nucleic acid. And this is the one that I showed you on the, this is B-form DNA. In B-form DNA, the major groove is very wide and accessible and shallow. It's easy to get at, right? And that's the way a DNA double helix looks, like this. Or another way to draw it is like this, okay? On the other hand, you have A-form RNA. Sorry, A-form nucleic acids, right? The shape is different. What happens is, instead of the major groove being very wide and shallow, the major groove becomes very narrow and deep. Okay? It's just a different way of drawing the, the double helix. Right? And it turns out that double, double helices in DNA take this B form, and double helices in RNA take this A form. Why is that? Well, it's, the it's that 2' hydroxyl. The 2' hydroxyl in RNA makes A form more stable. And the lack of the 2' hydroxyl in DNA makes B form more stable. Okay. And so you get basically DNA that looks like this and RNA that looks like this. There's also Z form, which is crazy. You never see it in real life. They can only make it in the lab under very certain pHs and salts and sequences. So don't worry. It exists, but don't worry about it so much. It's not real. It's, not, it's real, but it's not quote-unquote real. It doesn't really happen in living systems. But A form and B form are very real. DNA forms B form, and RNA forms A form. I told you how the major groove is very wide and shallow, meaning it's very accessible to proteins. Proteins can bind DNA and read the sequence in the major groove really easily. But in RNA, the major groove is deep and narrow. It's very hard to get in there and read the sequence. And that's why um, it's very difficult for proteins to recognize sequences of RNA when it's in a double-stranded helix. It's very challenging. And so RNA has to do some interesting things for proteins to recognize the sequence. Is that why what? Sorry? Yeah, well, so we're talking about his, the question is a little bit about histones. Um, the, the, the histones get around the problem of trying to package all this negative charge into something that's very small, mainly. 
But yes, when histones, when DNA is wrapped around histones, it's also going to protect it from, from nucleases. It's going to be more resistant to nucleases. And a lot of experiments we do in the lab rely on that. Right, so does everyone understand kind of these ideas? These, yeah. So that's a good question. So the question is about why are we talking about RNA and double-strandedness? And, and it's a good question, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a few slides. You know, depending on the RNA you're talking about, um, RNA doesn't have much meaning being double-stranded, or, or it can have meaning. Yeah. Mm. Um, that's a, you know, there's a lot of speculation on that. So the, we know that we hypothesize that life came out of what we call an RNA world, and that DNA came to be uh, after RNA. Um, the reason for that is, one of the reasons that the people speculate that that happened is because, like I talked about a little bit, or I alluded to, RNA can do chemistry, whereas DNA, having, lacking that hydroxyl, it's harder to do chemistry or enzymes with DNA, whereas RNA can do chemistry and it can be storage form of, of nucleic acids. Um, beyond that, I mean, we could, we, could, we could speculate over that, but I don't know if I want to speculate at length in class, so I'll, I'll move on, because I'm not doing as quickly as I thought I was. Okay. So I want to talk, touch briefly on um, some experiments that were done to show that DNA is the genetic material. Okay. This is a famous experiment by Avery McLeod and McCarthy. Uh, they were basically killing mice <laughs> uh, using uh, pneumonia, streptococcal pneumonia. It's kind of mean. I don't use mice in my lab, but some people do. It's all right. Um, basically, they had two forms of, of pneumonia. One was type R and type S. Type S had this, they looked under the microscope. Type S has, they call it S because S stands for smooth. It's got this slimy coat over it that makes the pneumonia very resistant to, sorry, yeah, resistant to your immune system or to a mouse's immune system. It's very hard for the mouse to fight this pneumonia when it's covered with this kind of uh, smooth, sugar-rich uh, coat. But they had a mutant of this pneumonia that was lacking its coat. Instead of looking nice and smooth on the microscope, it looked rough. And so they called that rough. If they inject rough into a mouse, the mouse survives because the mouse has, can easily clear this, uh, this bacteria. So you get a, a live mouse. If they take the smooth uh, bacteria, but they heat kill the bacteria, they inject that into the mouse, the mouse doesn't die, and the mouse recovers. Okay. But if they take the rough bacteria, sorry, what they don't show you here is if they inject live, smooth bacteria into the mouse, it kills the mouse, right? The interesting thing was they took the rough bacteria and they mixed it with the killed bacteria, the smooth heat-killed bacteria, and somehow the mouse died. And when they recovered the bacteria from the dead mouse, they found the smooth, living, smooth bacteria. Okay? So even though they did not inject the mouse with any heat-killed bacteria, sorry, with any live bacteria that was smooth, 
the, somehow the heat-killed bacteria, when injected with the live, rough bacteria, was able to still kill the mouse. So they created this hypothesis that something was being transformed from the dead bacteria into the rough bacteria to make the rough bacteria smooth. And then those transformed new smooth bacteria were killing the mouse. So that led to this kind of um, lab test or lab experiment proposing the idea of a transformable material, some sort of property that was being transferred from the dead cells, the dead S cells, into the live R cells, and the R cells were becoming uh, like the S ones. And so this was basically a hypothesis for some sort of genetic material that was transformable or transferable between organisms. And then uh, there was the Hershey and Chase experiment, which they also called the Blender experiment, which was neat. Basically, they took phage, okay, a phage is a virus that will uh, infect a bacteria and kill it. Okay. What they do is they take E. coli that's grown in hot phosphorus and hot sulfur. Hot meaning radioactive. Okay. And if you recall from what we've covered in class, proteins have hot sulfur but no hot phosphorus. Whereas nucleic acids have phosphorus but no, sorry. Proteins have sulfur but no phosphorus and nucleic acids have phosphorus but no sulfur. Right? So by growing E. coli in radioactive phosphorus and radioactive sulfur, you can separate the nucleic acids from the um, proteins. And so when they grew phage on these E. coli that were be being grown in hot phosphorus and hot sulfur, what they generated were viruses that had hot phosphorus and hot sulfur in them. So that means that the virus used the phosphorus and the sulfur within the cell to make new viruses, and they were radioactive. But then they did an interesting experiment. They took those hot viruses, and they used them to infect cold E. coli, meaning coli that were not grown in radioactive material. They let the infection go for just a little bit of time, and then they put the E. coli into a blender, literally, a wearing blender, to be specific. And what happened was, uh, all the uh, protein of the virus that was not injected into the cell, it came off. It was knocked off by the spinning around in the blender. But the nucleic acid that was injected into the bacteria, you can't blender that off. It's been injected into the bacteria. And what they did was when they looked at the viruses that emerged from those bacteria that had been infected, they, were on, they only had hot... Um, they only had radioactive uh, phosphorus in them, no radioactive sulfur. So some of the radioactive DNA that was injected into the bacteria became incorporated into the new phage, but the sulfur that was knocked off of the bacteria, and we know now that sulfur is not the genetic material, that was not incorporated into the new phage. And so this was the kind of the first strong evidence that, or one of the first pieces of strong evidence, that the nucleic acid, the thing that's being injected into the cell and causing the synthesis of new phage is, it's not the protein, it's the nucleic acid, right? You can knock off the protein and you still get infection. And when you look at the progeny, they don't have any of the 
protein from the previous phage. They only have the nucleic acid from it, or at least some of the nucleic acid from it. So this is something we do in the lab to measure the ability of different amounts of heat to denature strands. Okay, so it turns out that denatured uh, RNA, okay, um, absorbs much more UV light than double-stranded DNA or RNA. Okay, so this is an the first concept to get across to you here is this idea of denaturation and, and annealing. So you've got this double-stranded RNA, and you heat it. And when you heat it, the hydrogen bonds between the strands will break. Okay? But the covalent bonds that link the nucleotides in the chain will not break. Okay? So what happens is your double-stranded RNA or DNA will become single-stranded. You can put them back together if you slowly cool the strands back together. You have to do it slowly if you crash cool them. If you put them from 95 degrees into a minus 80, then basically it's thought that the two strands don't have enough time to find one another. But if you slowly cool the strands over the course of 10 minutes, say, then those two strands will find one another and you're going to renature it. So that's one thing you have to understand, kind of this idea of annealing and denaturation. We also call denaturation melting. The other thing to bear in mind is that uh, as you increase the temperature, the TM will change. The, the, sorry, as you increase the temperature, the strands will melt. And when they melt, they will absorb much more at, at, this, at this wavelength, at 260. And so by measuring the absorbance over time, sorry, by measuring the absorbance over temperature, as you increase the temperature, Nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. And then for this blue strand, starting at around 80, the absorbance starts to go up. And then at, you know, 85 degrees or so, it's all, there's no more absorbance you gain. You don't gain any more. Okay? This strand, this red strand, you have to increase the temperature higher to get the same effect. The temperature at which half of the denaturation has occurred this is kind of like the KM for an enzyme. It's the, we call it the TM. It's the melting temperature. It's the temperature at which the nucleic acid of interest is half melted. Okay? That means the denaturation as measured by, by this increase in light at UV, uh, the, 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 the denaturation is half finished. All right? So you can imagine that what would, be the, what would be one reason why these two different, the red and the blue, would have different TMs. Yeah, so different GC content. So this red one would likely have a lot more GC in it than the blue one. You need a higher temperature to melt it. So this is kind of what I alluded to a little while ago. I'm not going to finish today, but we'll see how far I can get. Uh, you know, only 22 slides in this lecture. It'll be easy, but I talk a lot. So while DNA is quite rigid, Okay, it likes to form just these helices, right? The presence of the two prime hydroxyl in RNA makes it much more flexible. So this is one strand of RNA that can bend back on itself, go around, come back. This is what we call a hairpin, a hairpin double helix. We call it a hairpin because when you draw it on the board, 
There's one strand. This, is, this would be DNA, right? Or double-stranded RNA. But RNA can do this. That's one strand of RNA with pairing between these, this section and then free nucleotides sticking out, say, in the loop. We call it a hairpin because it looks like a, hair, a hairpin. So here's a hairpin. That's kind of what I drew. So RNA is very happy to do this, right? Whereas DNA is not so happy to do this. Okay? So you get bulges and loops and hairpins and bends. Okay? The same Watson-Crick rules apply. You know, A pairs with U, C pairs with G. But then you have these single-stranded regions that kind of stick out. Remember I told you it's very hard for proteins to access the sequence of RNA in a helical portion. But because RNA can do these loops and hairpins and, and bulges, when proteins recognize RNA sequence, it's usually in these places where the double-stranded helix structure is not there. Okay. And where does this happen? Well, not all RNAs are messenger RNAs, right? Messenger RNAs are sequences that are going to be read by a ribosome and translated into a protein. If you're not familiar with that, we're going to cover it in the next few lectures. Some RNAs don't code for protein. They, like tRNAs and ribosomal RNAs, these are RNAs that don't code for a protein. In fact, they fold into a shape, and that shape is really important for their function. So, this is kind of the shape of a tRNA. So we're going to talk a little bit about classes of RNA. I'll finish on this slide. Classes of RNA. This is the tRNA. This is what a tRNA. It's the smallest RNAs. It's made of a single strand, a five prime end, and a three prime end, and it folds back on itself, just like I drew up here. So this is a region of double-stranded RNA helix. Okay. And even though all different tRNAs have different sequences, they all fold into this same shape. And the three-dimensional shape of a tRNA looks like this. They look like the letter L. We also call it an elbow. Okay? So you can imagine that for RNA, the ability to fold back on itself and to form double-stranded sequences matters. It's not, it's not trivial that you get regions of double-stranded RNA. The difference being that when you do that in RNA, uh, it's often in the same strand. It's not this is not double-stranded. This is one long single strand that's folded back on itself. So I'll pick that up again next class and we'll 